The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. Never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where your rabbi reveals how the world really works. I remind you that this is the only show in the entire digital universe where no electrons are killed, no electrons are even injured, and it is a place where electrons of every voltage are respected, and where every electron, regardless of what orbital shell it lives in, is treated the same, and every electron has the same power. So very good to be together with you. Thank you so much, and let's dive right into today's topic. This is a question that I get asked very regularly indeed. Today, I am a keynote speaker for a financial conference in, well, in a certain state, a state between the Atlantic Ocean and the Mississippi. Why am I not being specific about the state? Because I don't want to get anyone into any trouble at all. Me, I'm always in trouble. But that's no reason why my friends and associates and allies should have trouble inflicted on them. So am I speaking at this conference in person? Of course not. How could I be? That would be violating distancing guidelines. And would your rabbi disrespect bureaucratic distancing guidelines? (laughs) Was I wearing a mask, you ask? Mind your own business. Of course, one of the reasons people who get a thrill, a real deep sensual thrill out of bossing other people around, the reason they love public health issues is that they can always answer me when I say, mind your own business, they answer, but it is my business. Let me ask you, do you think it is respectful to address an audience that is paid to come and hear me teach? Is it respectful to speak to them dressed like a low fashion bank robber? and mumbling through three layers of cotton and polyester covering my mouth? Would that be respectful? Of course not. And I would never disrespect anybody who invests time in hearing me teach. I wondered if anyone would direct me to wear a mask, but nobody did. And nobody else was wearing one either. Happy times. But of course, this was way outside of a city. This was a rural area, and most people were urban, most people were rural dwellers, and I wonder if it was a coincidence that all I saw in the neighborhood as I drove there to this conference I never would have attended in person were Trump-Pence signs. God bless rural America. God bless Christian America. It's our only hope. Meanwhile, it was pleasant to escape the madness for a short period of time. And during an interruption, during a break in the program, one woman approached me and she said, so I've always wanted to ask you one question. Tell me, what is the secret to a successful marriage? Um, Funnily enough, a little while earlier, I was speaking for a synagogue in Dallas, Texas, a few months ago, actually. And sure enough, uh, the same question cropped up. 
and they phrased it in a very similar way. What is the one secret for a successful, happy marriage? Now, why were they asking me? Well, it is true that I have been blessed with a wonderful marriage. But if I was going to answer that question based entirely on my own experience, then the only fair and accurate response I could give is, <laughs> marry Susan Lapp and you know, just marry the right person. Everything will work out. But that's not true. And obviously, it isn't the answer that people are expecting when they ask me that question. And so I answered it accurately. I said that the most accurate answer I can give you is that the one most important thing about marriage. Now, if I had some musical accompaniment here, uh, we'd have a roll of the drums. Where's my sound engineer? That's what I need. A roll of the drums, a little bit of background tension building music. You want to know the one single most important secret to marriage? And this isn't anecdotal, because every married couple can tell you something. Uh, you know, I'll tell you what we have found is the most single most important thing. You must never go to bed with an argument. You must always resolve arguments before bedtime. So you'll have one couple telling you that. Okay, very nice, very good. Yeah, true, it's, it's certainly valid. Um, you know, that was what you in your marriage found to be the most valuable and successful thing. You are somebody else. And they say, oh, you know what you really got to do? You've got to make sure that you always have somebody outside the marriage to go to, to help reconcile arguments and resolve conflicts that arise. Okay, fine. That's something that you found was useful in your marriage, and, and it's good and valid. But when it comes to universal standards, when it comes to timeless truths, and it comes to permanent principles, people are looking for something real, not just your own personal experiences. And again, you know, I've certainly had a lot of interesting experiences, but when people ask me questions, they're asking me essentially, what does ancient Jewish biblical wisdom say about this? What are the insights of the ages that we can bring to bear on this particular question? And so I knew that the answer had to be true. And I said, here it is. The most accurate and correct answer to the question of what is the one most important thing to know about a successful marriage, the answer is this. Do not ever believe that there is one specific answer that brings about a successful marriage. That's right. The answer to what is the one best thing, the important thing, is that there is no one most important thing, and I'm serious. I don't think that I could give you a better response to the question of what is the one most important thing to know about marriage. There isn't one. And the lady reacted with a look of complete shock for a moment. And then you could see it begin to dawn on her. She thought about it and processed that for two or three seconds. And then after I'd given it a chance to gel, I said, look, you know, Imagine if a designer came to you and said, what is the single most important thing to have in mind while I'm designing a new motor car for Mercedes-Benz or BMW or Lexus? What, give me the one most important thing I have to bear in mind. Well, there isn't one, don't you see? There's compromises, uh, there's decisions, is the car going to be about performance, is it going to be about comfort? When it comes to anything that is complex, the idea that there is just one simple solution is stupid. When it comes to anything that is really complex, the idea that it, there is just one simple solution is misleading and damaging.
Imagine walking into a nuclear power station and you say, okay, now, excuse me, what is the one most important thing I need to know about operating this power station? Well, I think my answer is the same answer. It applies to this also. The most important single thing to know about operating a nuclear power station is that there is not a single most important thing. And that's why if you even ask to see the instruction manual for a nuclear power station, you go into the control room and you say, can I see the instruction manual? You won't be shown a manual the size of what came with your car in the glove box. Uh, you won't be shown a bigger book. You will be shown something much bigger than, you remember many, many, many years ago in the days of your grandparents, they used to have things called telephone directories. And the Manhattan Telephone Directory was a big book about six inches thick. Well, yeah, you probably wouldn't remember any of that. But um, the Nuclear Power Station Instruction Manual, eh, they won't even show you a book that big. No, you ask to see the instruction manual for a nuclear power station, and what, in fact, you will see is they'll walk you into a room like a little mini library, and the walls will be covered with shelving, and the shelves will be filled with many instruction manuals, all labeled and categorized and sectioned, everything having to do with a different part of the power station. The nuclear end, the cooling section, the safety section, the generator section, the steam piping. No, there is no one most important thing. And I, I'm sure you see what I'm saying. When you're dealing with complex situations and complicated circumstances, the, the question or the belief or the notion that there is one answer. There's one most important. It's simply not true. I sometimes get asked after different speeches and presentations, um, you know, particularly when I'm speaking about marriage and male-female relationships, and, uh, and that the question is then always, you know, what's the one most important thing about marriage? But when I speak to entrepreneurs and when I do business discussions or seminars and forums based on some of my writing in Thou Shall Prosper, or business secrets from the Bible, or other books. And, and very often people will say, okay, so can you nail this down for us? What is the one most important thing that any entrepreneur really has to know? And I, I've really thought about that because I don't like appearing to dodge questions, and I certainly don't like dispatching a serious question with what appears to be a frivolous answer. No, not at all. I don't want to do that. And so what is the right answer to the question, what is the most important thing for any entrepreneur to know? And I think about it, and I realize that once again, this is exactly like the nuclear power station question, and exactly like the marriage question. Different entrepreneurs face entirely different challenges. Some, to some, certain things come naturally, other things are very difficult. And so once again, I'm afraid that the most accurate response to an entrepreneur asking that question, what is the one most important thing, is that there is not any one most important thing. And that could really be quite helpful, because it is always easiest to be a specialist than a generalist. It's always easier to just block everything else out of your mind and just do one thing. To be Anthony Fauci, at this point, early, mid, uh, late 2020, to be Anthony Fauci in the United States of America, the guy who uh, the country believes has the solution to the COVID-19 pandemic, to be him is actually very easy because he puts everything else out of his mind 
And all he has to do is look at COVID figures and make a pronouncement. Really, it's an easy life. You know who has a hard life? The chief executive officer, President Donald Trump. He's got a tough, because this is like everything else in your life. I've told you many times, if you want uh, to know my approach to these things, it's very simple. I do talk to experts all the time. I do examine studies very carefully. But when it comes to making an operational decision about my life, I make the decision. And it's usually not one that all my experts will agree with. I might speak to my insurance broker and say, so tell me, uh, how do you feel about me doing a bit of mountain climbing and a little bit of scuba diving? Um, all that good with you? My insurance broker would say, no, I'm sorry. We, we don't want you to do anything. The statistical uh, figures and the actuarial tables show us that people who go mountain climbing and engage in any other kinds of extreme sports, uh, generally speaking, uh, have shorter lifespans, and we don't want to have to pay out your insurance. So no, please do not do that. Uh, I could speak to my doctor, and my doctor would say, um, listen, uh, probably best for you not to do it. You know, climbing a mountain, you're putting yourself far away from medical help and their risks, and who knows, people fall. And you don't want to do that. And you know what? The insurance guy's right, and the doctor's right. And then I speak to a life coach, and uh, he says, you know what you need? You've been locked up too long. You need to get out, uh, go somewhere where you can put on a scuba tank and a mask and a regulator, put on some weights and some fins, and you get out there and, uh, and get underwater. That's what you need to do. And you really, you'll be much more productive when you come back. You'll find that you, you're just ready to go. You know what? He's right also. How can they all be right? They're not. They are all, each one is a hammer looking at his own particular nail. But the operational decisions for my life are not made by my experts. They're made by me. And so I will weigh up at any particular time whether the risk is worth the reward for that action or, for that matter, any other action as well. And, uh, and, and that's the hard decision. It's very difficult. And you've been in the situation, as I have many, many, many times, where you are forced to make an operational decision, and there are reasons to do it, there are reasons not to do it, there are reasons to choose A, there are reasons to choose B, there are reasons to choose C. And a every expert who advances his own solution, A, B, or C, is absolutely firm about it, and he's probably correct within the confines of his radar screen. But for me... I've got to make the operational decision. For them, it's easy. They simply state the facts that they were taught. But for me, I've got to weigh up and make a decision. And any decision I make is going to have elements of great idea and elements of, well, it's too bad you did this. But you still have to make your decision. It's like that in so many different areas of life. It is always easier to just block out all other things and to focus on only one thing. And not only is it easier, but you do a much better job of it. And, and that's one of the reasons why it is such a mistake when people uh, leave their phones on while they're trying to work or they uh, leave their email on. And what happens is that while they're working, <coughs> up pops a little indicator or something that says uh, emails arrived and you interrupt what you're doing and you go 
take care of whatever the email is about, usually nothing much. And then when you go back to the project you were occupied with, uh, you've got to sort of restart and get back into gear again. People don't realize, but I'm here to indicate for you to, to really be the Mother Teresa of workflow management, <coughs> to, to let you know that if you are doing this, if you've fallen into this habit of um, letting your phone notify you when you've received a text message or your email program sends a notification onto your screen, uh, you are doing yourself a huge disservice and you will really be astounded, truly astounded at how much more effective you are if you make sure you are only working on one thing. I know I surprised a friend of mine recently when he said to me, what is the most relaxing thing for you to do? <laughs> and I said, well, um, in a funny way, to give a very important speech to a wonderful audience, that is actually relaxing. And he said, I would have thought that, that that's the most stressful and tense thing you do. How can you say it's the most relaxing? And I said, well, you're right. I do stress over speeches I have to deliver. I work hard on the preparation. I, <coughs> pardon me, I stress before the speech, no question about it. However, it's relaxing in this way. While I'm working on a speech, I am not thinking about anything else in the entire whole world. I'm only focused on that. I'm not thinking about any other business challenges. I'm not thinking about family questions that have to be settled. Uh, I'm certainly not thinking about political problems and challenges and worries and concerns. I'm not even worrying about the speech I have to give next week. I'm only focused single-mindedly on the speech that I'm going to be giving right now. And that is strangely liberating. In a way, it's utterly relaxing because I'm only dealing with one thing. And to only have to worry about one thing is a, a, a huge luxury. But, of course, in real life, that just isn't how the world really works, is it? The truth is that most of us are dealing with many plates spinning on many sticks. If you've seen that wonderful circus act uh, where the, the juggler or the clown uh, sets plates spinning on sticks and then has to dash in a frenzy, uh, from each one that seems to be slowing down and the spinning plate is about to fall off the stick and he's got to run and take care of another one. And you just, you, you, you're filled with not only uh, enthusiasm and, 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 and uh, admiration for the trick, but it also makes you laugh because you realize that it's a very real depiction of your life. You know, you're constantly dealing with spinning plates on sticks and they slow down. You've got to run and speed them up again before they fall down. But meanwhile, two more are slowing down. Uh, we, we all have many balls bouncing in the air at the same time to mix metaphors. And, uh, and we all just by, by the reality of life, we're juggling a lot of things. So, uh, all right, I think I'm, I'm running out of circus metaphors here, but that's the idea. Uh, it's almost impossible to have the luxury to only be concerned about one thing. But, but, nonetheless, uh, there is value in developing the discipline inside of us, inside each and every one of us, 
it's worth developing the discipline to be able to make ourselves push to the back of our minds things that may be worrying us, but to push them aside when it is time to focus on just the one thing. And so uh, that's why when when my friend asked me what is the most relaxing thing for me, he thought I would say the relaxing thing for me is being on my boat with some of my family, sailing off somewhere beautiful British Columbia. But no, because that's not really relaxing in the same way. Because when I'm sailing on a boat in British Columbia with a family, I've got a lot of things. There's navigation, there's weather, there's the uh, mechanical condition, monitoring the engine room and making sure. Oh, you're as busy as can be. Now, it's a very, for me, it's a very delightful thing, no complaints. But uh, relaxing, it isn't. Not, not in, yeah, to the extent that relaxing, it's always relaxing to be doing something different from what you ordinarily do, still probably okay. But uh, now to be focused, to be doing something where there's only one thing I have to be worried about now, that is really the most relaxing. So um, my mind then is, is normally on many, many things that I think I need to be dealing with. But when I'm actually doing what is for the moment, the most urgent and important thing for right now, it's relaxing because there's nothing else. And this is why I always encourage you to make sure that you have lists, that either you use a collection of three by five cards held together with a rubber band and you put your, each time you think of something you've got to do, you put it on there. Uh, or you have a, a book, a to-do list book, where everything that occurs to you needs doing gets put on that book. And then, you know, at a certain period, at the end of every day or at the start of every day, you review that and you determine uh, which of those things are important but not urgent, which of them are urgent but not important, which are urgent and important. And, of course, the ones that are neither important or urgent, you can just scratch off and forget them. But the great thing about making sure you write them down is that that way when you are busy focusing on the one thing you're supposed to be doing right now, you can really relax if, in that sense because you know that you don't even have to bear in mind the things, the other things that you should be doing. No, they're written down, they're collected, you can refer to them when you are, whenever you need it. And so in the life of an entrepreneur, of an entrepreneur, um, that's really how it is. You know that whatever you're doing, you know there are other things pulling on your time as well. And one of the most challenging things about being an entrepreneur, and particularly in the early stage of an entrepreneur, where you don't yet even have a team of helpful people working with you, you don't even have enough people to whom you can delegate challenges. Part of the problem is just figuring out what you should be doing just then figuring out what is the most effective and best use of your time right now. And that is always difficult to know. But one thing is for sure, and that is there is no one most important thing ever about being an entrepreneur. That's just not how the world really works. What is the one most important thing you need to know to build a happy family, right? Parents sometimes ask me that one, particularly young parents starting off. They've just had their first baby. So 
So tell us now, so we can get into the right mode, what is the one single most important thing we need to know as we are now starting our family? Well, I could tell you a few things, but I think the most important thing I need to tell you is that there isn't. That's right. You know the answer. There just is not one most important thing. What is the one thing to always know about child-rearing? You know what it is for me? Well, it's don't discipline your child when you're angry and frustrated. Okay, fine. For somebody else, always let your child know how much you love him. For somebody else, it's something else. Everyone has their own sense of, well, I've discovered after raising my children, you know what the one most important thing to do? That's how to make sure I turn off. I don't pay attention to one most important things. There's not only one most important thing to know about when raising children. Somebody said to me, a lot of people have been upset because of your support of President Donald Trump. And as upset as people were when I supported him all the way through 2016, I must say that now that I'm supporting him, you know, only a few months before the election of November 2020, I think people are even more upset. Not everybody. Obviously, there are many people who are supporting him. But uh, people who are on the other side, um, it's, it's really, really astonishing just how angry and furious and, uh, and all-encompassing their anger is. People are willing to terminate long relationships and long friendships over that. Now, I'm not mystified by that at all. I, I do get it. And it certainly gives you a little clue as to how important the election is. Somebody said to me um, at, uh, at this conference, somebody said to me, aren't you worried about how divisive uh, the president is and how divided the country is. And look, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what I said. I, this isn't, you know, this is not the answer for everybody in the same way that my attitude to masks and COVID-19, again, not for everybody. For me personally, I believe the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, when they state that they have dramatically overcounted the number of COVID uh, cases. I believe them. I think they did overcount that. There's no question about it. And that instead of talking about 150,000, 160,000, 170,000 deaths of COVID, um, actually, I believe. Now, again, this is my belief. Uh, I'm not imposing it on anybody else. But I do think that anybody who is truly open-minded will research it and find out that the actual number of COVID deaths is about 10,000 around the country. In other words, given the weekly, average weekly death rate in the United States, it's barely a blip on the screen. It's barely noticeable. And, uh, and that's why I believe that the whole thing has been a dreadful mistake on the part of of not only the United States, but of Italy and many other countries as well. And I do believe that uh, that in doing what we've done, we were being played for patsies by uh, the Communist Party of China, Chinese, uh, Chinese Communist Party. I do believe that because I, I do believe that, uh, that at the very least, they get wildly entertained 
at the notion of throwing us into a frenzy. And at best, or at worst, uh, they get very advantaged by throwing us into a frenzy. I've told you, for many, many years I've told you, when I'm saying many years, um, certainly, I mean, even before 2016, but back at the last uh, presidential election, I was pointing out everybody's in a tizzy about Russia. Russia's not the problem. If anything, if anything, we face many of the similar problems to Russia, and uh, I, I don't doubt that in Mr. Trump's second term, which I hope he gets, um, I think he'll probably work out some deals with um, with uh, a Putin that'll that'll be very positive and very and very effective. But again, that's that's how I view it, and um, and I think that China uh, did play a major role, not only in the Wuhan flu or in the COVID-19, but also in stimulating the lockdown fever. That's what I, I do believe. So uh, I said at the time that China is a very real threat, but but not the United States of America. So um, everybody, you know, people people have their own ideas, and, and that's and that's absolutely fine. Uh, because the you should do what I do, which is listen to a lot of people, a lot of people I like, a lot of people I don't like. I do. I listen to a lot of different people. And from all that information, I form my opinion. Why? Because me, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, I am responsible for my views, my opinions, my mindsets. I'm responsible. It's an operational decision of my life. I have to take responsibility for making that decision. I don't have to take the responsibility of making that operational decision for anybody else. Don't do that. So uh, it, it's really important here, the, the idea of, uh, of individualism, the idea, yes, when it comes to building a society and a community, of course, we work together. When we try and build a civic reality, we recognize that the most fundamental unit of society is not an individual, it's a family. We have to recognize that. And uh, we have to make sure that if we do not, that we understand that failure to recognize that means essentially giving uh, bureaucracy and governmental administrators rights over our children. And again, it's always on the basis that it's hard to argue against. Aren't you in favor of safety for children? Don't you want government inspectors in health and human services or child protective services to be able to demand entry into every home in America so they can monitor the welfare of children? What sort of monster are you if you oppose that? See, that's how it goes. Public health. You have to wear a mask in order to protect other people. That was exactly what they did with secondhand smoke. Smoking used to be everyone's own decision. But as soon as we turned it into public health, now, you, now you're a monster if you smoke. It doesn't matter that the myth of secondhand smoke has been disproven a dozen times because people will believe what they want to believe. And so for many people, not wearing a mask is endangering other people. Sorry, I reserve the right to not wear a mask. Now, 
obviously a store or a restaurant has the right to say in this establishment you have to wear one that's they're entitled to do that so if i want to go in there then i um, make sure then i have to make their choice trump my preference because i'm going into their private property that's obvious but if i'm walking on the street and i get a mouthful from somebody who uh, objects to the fact that i'm not wearing a mask hey avoid me cross over to the other side walk somewhere else but you do not have the right to force a piece of paper onto my face you just don't i'm sorry not not real now uh, can you get the government to do it for you yeah right and and i oppose that um, you know after all protest is holy right isn't it wonderful when people go out into the streets and protest? Kamala Harris stated as much. It's, it's, we must encourage these protests. They should continue, she told um, the uh, comedian it was on the late show on television. Uh, yes, we must, we must keep on doing this. And you know what? It's going to continue even up to the election, and it may even continue after the election, she said, basically sending us all a message. You'd better not vote the wrong way. If you do not want riots to continue after November the 3rd, you better vote the right way. That's essentially what she said. So, yeah, there is a clash at the moment, uh, a, divi a divided country. That's the whole idea that the founders put in place. Of course, we're a divided country. If we weren't, it would mean that conservatism would yield to the left constantly. That's the only way to make sure we're no longer a divided country because the left never yields to the right. It's always the Republican Party that makes concessions. But, uh, you you know, when, when are you going to find the, the Democrats in the United States of America making concessions? And this is true in Sweden, it's true in France, it's true in the United Kingdom. It is always the left that knows its program, and you've got to admire it, that remains firmly committed and unshakably resolved on its program, willing to wait but uh, conservatives, in the name of, oh, we've got to have peace, we've got to have bipartisanship, we've got to get on, um, what they do is yield. And so I explained to the person, I don't mind the uh, divided country. I'm very pleased there's one. Otherwise, it would mean the side I believe is right will have lost. And uh, President Trump provokes great divisiveness. I should say, I should say so because he has terrified the left more than anybody since Ronald Reagan. Do you think the left was scared of George W. Bush? Oh, of course not. Uh, not in the slightest. Uh, the left knew that they may be slightly slowed, but the agenda would continue. President Donald Trump is the very first president that terrifies the left because he is perfectly willing to stand astride their tracks and put out a hand and say, you're not going any further down this road. And they realize they have to get rid of him. That's that's the plan. So uh, uh, this is what I mean. Every, you know, Each person, his own thing. The, the notion that there's only one way to raise children, forget about it. Uh, there's not only one, there's only not one most important thing to know about when raising children, but um, uh, People, as I said, have been upset about my support for the president. Um, so uh, I, I really would urge those of you who still send me angry emails about my support of President Trump, I, I can tell from the things you write that you have not bothered to listen 
to the show. You've not bothered to listen to exactly what I say. All you've done is you've heard that I'm supporting Trump. Somebody told you or you saw it on YouTube or wherever it is, and immediately you send me an angry letter. You haven't even bothered to find out exactly what it is. But one of the letters um, recently, uh, and it's, you know, it's not that I'm inundated or anything, but, uh, but I've received about, I don't know, about a dozen letters over the last three or four months on the subject. And one of them said, let me tell you the one thing that makes Trump so dangerous. Okay, there, I'm sorry, I'm not reading any further. I'm sorry, I'm very busy, and I do my best to be responsible towards people who write to me. And if you're going to write me a letter and you get a response, and many of you have received a response from me, so you know that your letter must have been thoughtful, there was something to it. It was also not a letter that demanded uh, too much work on my part to read and to understand the point you're making. You made it all easy for me. But whenever somebody says, let me tell you the one thing that makes Trump unqualified as president, I'm not reading any further. Now, the truth is, I'm not even reading when, he, when you write, I've got seven things that make Trump unqualified as president. I'm not reading any further because it means you are slurring millions of my fellow citizens who saw fit to vote for him and who are going to vote for him again in November 2020. So for you to say he's unqualified as a president means that me and everybody else who voted for him obviously don't know what we're talking about. We obviously didn't even understand how unqualified. Look, sorry, we disagree with you. We think you're wrong. We think he's very qualified to be president. That's our opinion. And you know what? So far, according to the unchanged Constitution of the United States, yeah, we're entitled to that opinion. So... Um, that's how it goes. Uh, so I, um, what was the lesson from ancient Jewish wisdom, the lesson about how the world really works that we're talking about here? It's very simple. And that is that any time that anyone says, this is the one single reason, or this is the one most important thing, you can pretty much disregard that almost every time you hear it. So I'm saving you time is what I'm really doing. There might be a few rare exceptions, but for the overwhelming majority of cases, any time that somebody implies that there's just one explanation and that that makes sense of everything, yeah, probably not. It's probably not really true because the way the world really works is that the world is a very complicated place and life tends to be very complicated. And so the notion that it can be reduced to a simple slogan or one simple solution or one singular explanation, no, I don't think so. Uh, it's just not really true. Look, people who do understand how the world really works, uh, including rabbinic ancestors of mine, really, teachers of my teachers and teachers of my teachers of my teachers, wrote at the time in the 1800s, in the early 1900s, uh, back then in the late 19th century, in the early 20th century, when Sigmund Freud was articulating his theories that essentially sex is at the absolute center of human existence, literally eclipsing everything else in its importance for the development of human character and the ongoing story of human beings. I mean, that's the sort of thing Freud was saying back in the early 20th century. And uh, you can read his writings. Um, but what's interesting is that I could show you contemporary writings at the time 
of teachers of my teachers, who said at the time, this is what a Jewish psychiatrist in Austria, in Vienna, is saying, and you need to know, um, you students and my readers, you have to know this is complete nonsense. Now, what did a Jewish rabbinic scholar in Lithuania in 1925 know about psychoanalysis? Right? <laughs> Probably nothing. What did he know about the intellectual circles of Vienna society in Austria? Probably nothing at all. So how was he able to write at the time that those theories that sex is at the center of all human interaction, how was he able to write that this is complete nonsense? How was he able to say this is unadulterated bilge water? Well, he didn't use those exact words, but I paraphrase. Well, apart from anything else, he was able to say it because Freud implied that that was the one single most important thing you have to know about people. And anybody who knows anything about how the world really works knows that that's just wrong. I don't care if you say that the single most important thing in human development is carrots. You're wrong. If you say that the single most important thing in human development is self-esteem, you're wrong. If you say that the single most important thing in human development is um, uh, whatever, is just this one thing, it's nonsense. The human being is far too complex for there to be one most important central core idea. No, it's simply not true. Now, I know that some of you are probably thinking to yourself, well, surely the single most important thing to know about human beings is God. And I would say uh, that also is not absolutely correct uh, because you are, again, reducing a vastly complex range of ideas to, to just one thing. It doesn't work. So it's a valuable tool, I think, uh, for people to understand. Karl Marx, right? The class struggle is the center of all of historic development of humanity. Rubbish. Complete rubbish. Am I a political scientist? I don't have to be. Even if I had not had the opportunity to watch seven sad, sordid decades of suppression and suffering in the Soviet Union, even, even if I had not been able to be aware of the lamentable catalogue of crime causing the murder of more people than any other period in history, all caused by Marxism in the Soviet Union and in China. If I didn't know what Marxism had produced, I still would have said that Marxism is complete rubbish, simply on the basis of it being one idea that is at the center of all human historic development, and that is the class struggle, complete nonsense. And there is a, uh, a young girl's magazine called Teen Vogue, and they carry a regular column which uh, teaches its readers, young, young girls, teaches them about socialism. And I've been reading some of the articles there lately, and uh, I've, I've thought about maybe doing a show, taking some of the articles and debunking them, but I... I don't really think it's necessary for the audience of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show. But one thing I would say to them is that here's one of the big differences between socialism and freedom. Socialism usually has one answer for everything. 
and and this is on grand philosophical matters as well as on trivial ones, right? On uh, as I mentioned earlier, in the Soviet Union there was one brand of cereal, there was one brand of motor car, because there's one simple solution. Socialism simplifies human existence to this idea, you know, class struggle, fine, uh, human beings need this, equality, but it, whatever the conversation, it's always just one thing, whereas in freedom, when you ask um, somebody like uh, Victor Davis Hanson, who is a, a remarkable American thinker, I don't think he'd like to be called American thinker, he'd like to be called a California farmer in the California Central Valley, but he also teaches at Stanford, and um, if you said to him, what is the single most important idea about freedom and uh, Western civilization? I very much doubt that he'd answer because he realizes that in any true depiction of reality, there isn't only one thing. If you look at a map to get from one place to another, there is seldom only one way to go. Even your GPS will tell you, well, there's several ways. You've got to tell me, do you want to, are you willing to pay tolls? Uh, do you want to stick to freeways? Uh, do you want to only use secondary roads if you've got a, a, a GPS that allows such fine-tuning? Otherwise, use a wonderful invention. You may not have ever seen this thing. It's called a paper map. Just use a map. And you can choose exactly how you want to go, but you know what? Because there's usually not only one way to get to a destination. You weigh it up and you choose. And that's inherently one of the evident uh, flaws of socialism, its tendency to oversimplify. And uh, I noticed that each column that I looked at in this magazine for young girls uh, tended to do exactly that, oversimplifying. Um, socialism is the system that provides dignity and compassion for people. <laughs> okay, yeah, right. Uh, done, said, and and that settles it. You know, complete nonsense. So, uh, uh, one of the reasons I I never took Bernie Sanders seriously as a candidate in America, I I didn't I never took him seriously as a senator. Again, nobody who thinks that everything in life is reduced to one great evil, namely Wall Street. Oh, Wall Street's responsible for all. It's simply not true. It's never just one thing. Uh, that's just childish, completely childish. And I do, I mean, I think um, there are only, I mean, yeah, foolish and childish. And so you know that as well. Anytime anybody, any attempt, any attempt at all that suggests, oh, yes, this is the one thing, this explains everything, this is the great evil. This is the great Satan. This is responsible for what's ruining your life. You know what's? You know why your life's in a shambles? Racism. You know, you'd be silly if you believed that. You really would. I know it's tempting. It. You know, whatever's wrong with my life is not my fault. It's always somebody else's fault. Because the left doesn't accept the notion that any person can be complicit in his own suffering. And the fact is, of course, that that is very true. Uh, I, I like to say that 98.9% of all people with financial problems today can trace them to having made one or more mistakes, bad decisions yesterday. That's right. Blaming the victim? Uh-huh. 
Yeah, very often the victim is responsible for his circumstance. Very often. Have you ever seen somebody pick a fight with somebody he thought he could beat? Turned out that the other person, surprisingly, was actually a far superior pugilist and beat the daylights, being the day, beat the daylights out of the person who started up. Well, I think you can safely say that the person who got beaten up was very complicit in his own misfortune. He made a really bad mistake. That is, uh, is, is what is so important to know. So this is why I understand. It's wonderful to say, oh, you know, the problems in America, or the problems with my life, or the problems with his life, it's racism. Um, apart from the fact that I still await a very good definition. I, wait, I actually await any definition of racism. I really do. I also await a definition of anti-Semitism because I think both, both those allegations, both those charges are mostly used as bludgeons to silence opposition into submission. Oh, you're an anti-Semite. So what? So I'm not allowed to talk anymore? So my view is, is valueless? You're a racist. So you shut up. You've got nothing to say. You're a horrible person. You're a racist. Okay. The way things work in the real world is that we charge people with things they've done, not with things they've said or, or thought or things we think that they have thought. And it's, it's incredibly arrogant to think that you know what lies in the heart and mind of another human being. So one simple explanation, you know why his life is hard? Because of racism. No, that's probably not the case because almost every attempt that finds one explanation for every, yeah, probably wrong, probably simply not right. Uh, today, the left tends to advance um, an argument, but the truth is, I, I shouldn't even call what the left advances an argument because an argument suggests structure, logic, and uh, philosophical debate. But what the left advances is more the raucous cry of a wounded animal. The left insists that Donald Trump is the one problem with America. And, and you listen to Democratic politicians, <laughs> and they're being demonstrably silly. Without Trump, no covid no rampaging mobs of rioting barbarians, no global warming, no saber-rattling, no Russia, no ambitious China, no poverty, no cockroaches or bedbugs. Without Trump, life would be perfect. Listen to them. That's what they say. Unadulterated bilge water. Because never is anything complex due to one person or one cause. You have to dismiss that moronic twaddle. Now, why is it so seductive? And it is seductive because Madison Avenue, oh, the great evil of America is Madison Avenue, right? There was a time people were saying it, Madison Avenue, like now they say Wall Street. In the 70s, they used to say Madison Avenue, Madison Avenue, that's the great evil. Advertising is the big evil in American society. Madison Avenue, advertising, that's what makes America so materialistic. Oh, Madison Avenue makes Americans buy things they, buy things they don't really need and things they don't really want. Oh, the power of the evil Madison Avenue. This is the sort of thing people used to say. 
Anyway, Madison Avenue, clearly, with all the brilliant thinkers at their disposal, the psychologists they employ, the, uh, the, the, the experts, it didn't take them long to glom onto the idea that singleness is enormously appealing. It's enormously attractive. One, oneness. What, here's the one explanation for whatever's wrong. And human beings are drawn to this idea of having one thing. Put another way, we are all subconsciously drawn to unity. Unity, right, if you like another word for one, uni, um, Unitarians, belief in one God, uh, unity, oneness. We are subconsciously drawn to unity. And, um, and this is why you'll find that clickbait on the internet sometimes will, will be stuff that says... Um, uh, find out which is the country that did this, or find out which is the Hollywood celebrity who did. Oh, you're giving us oneness. You, you're you're shining a spotlight on something that's only one. We all do find oneness appealing. We like a theory that explains a lot of things, and this is why it is so appealing. Oh, the thing wrong with your life? Oh, it's racism. That explains everything. Oh, it's Donald Trump. It's it's great because it responds to the human desire we all have to just focus to 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 see a oneness solving all problems. I, I'm going to surprise you on this. I think when I tell you that this desire for unity lies at part, at least partially, at the heart of socialism. It's a fundamental truth that lies at the heart of something fundamentally dishonest, evil, wrong. But, I, but, but you've got to know as a general rule about how the world really works, that anything that does not possess even a microscopic morsel of truth does not survive for very long. Conversely, any lie that has survived for something of a period of time, as evil as it is, as false as it is, as dishonest as it is, such as socialism or communism or progressivism or liberalism, whatever other polite term you come up with for, for that evil and destructive pathology that we think of as the left or socialism or progressivism, um, the fact that that evil and destructive pathology has survived and the fact that it continues to exert a fatal fascination on the human mind and the fact that young Americans, as well as young people in many other countries, are finding themselves seduced by the simplicity of socialism. Well, it must contain certain truths within it, otherwise it wouldn't survive at all. Not many, but some, and maybe only one, because without any truth in it at all, nothing survives. And that's I think that's a useful principle to be aware of. And so... Uh, you know, let's imagine that you're arguing with somebody and you know he's 100% wrong, whether it's a business matter, whether it's a social matter, political, um, when you are setting about to demolish his argument, you should start off by finding the one true thing in his argument. And then you can start off saying, although you are correct on this, and that's a little bit disarming, and then you can go on to take the rest to pieces. But the odds are that there probably is something in there that is true, and it's probably worthwhile um, starting in on that, becoming aware of that. Yeah, that's right, because without some element of truth, nothing endures. And one of the truths that does lie embedded within socialism, 
is this idea of, hey, we're all together, we're all going to be unified, one world government, it would be so much simpler, we'd all be together, it would eliminate arguments and wars. All right, now when you say one world government in that phrasing, people sometimes think you're, you're a little bit of a kook or a clown or a creep or a crackpot, but the almost childlike faith that progressivism has in institutions like the World Health Organization, yeah, right, the United Nations, uh-huh, um, it's all part of this dream of unity, of connection. We're all one. And this is one of the things that gives socialism and, li and liberalism its enormous strength, because we all find the idea of oneness appealing. The idea of no borders. When communists sing their song called the Internationale, what they're really singing about is all unified international boundaries don't exist. Workers of the world unite. We're all one group of people. And it is appealing. After all, you know, what parents do not want their family to be unified? What parent isn't aggravated to the point of, of bitter tears at children squabbling and fighting? And so we, we do find unity very appealing. There's a lot of truth in that. That is an appeal to a durable and real longing in the human soul. We all have it. Now, you might say, really? Me too? Yeah, you too. Here's another manifestation of exactly the same thing. The longing we have for unity sometimes manifests itself in sex. When we long to become at one with another human being, and sex is, after all, the most profound and deepest way in which we can know another person in order to become at one with them, to become one flesh, it's all part of the same idea. Now, obviously, there is a powerful physical and sensual pleasure to it as well, naturally. But one aspect of ancient Jewish wisdom on this would say that the enjoyment, the physical pleasure, is partially a consequence of what is already there, is more foundational, namely the desire for unity. We are so wired for unity that any attaining of it actually feels pleasurable. This desire to connect, that's part of it. And this is even what the appeal was when Albert Einstein spent the last years of his life searching for what they called the unified field theory. And again, I'm not uh, going to be embarking on a discussion on quantum mechanics here or anything, but I just want to point out that there are certain forces that exist in the world. And what's bizarre is that they seem to behave in similar ways when we measure them and we apply laws of physics, and we measure the mathematics of these different forces, they behave in the same way, which is so mind-boggling, because there's absolutely no reason to suppose that would be the case. There's a magnetic force, and anyone who's played with a magnet on your refrigerator door, you know that there's somehow an attraction between a magnet and a piece of steel, or between two magnets. What is that force? It's magnetic force. Anybody who jumps up in the air and then feels yourself rapidly being pulled back down to earth, well, you're so accustomed to this, you don't think about how extraordinary it is. It's just a part of everyday life. We take it for granted. 
But astronauts realize that when you put something in front of your face and take your fingers away, it doesn't fall. It just stays there. Now, that is normal. But for it to suddenly start accelerating away from you in a direction towards where your feet are, weird. Like, why? And, um, and when you sit down to think about that, you realize there's an invisible, mysterious force pulling your body towards the earth. As a matter of fact, there's a mysterious force uh, pulling any two bodies together. So, for instance, the Earth and the Moon. There's a strong attractive force between the two of them. Or between the Moon and all the water in our oceans. That's something called tides. And um, for that matter, between two bowling balls. Think of sort of two dense black bowling balls. And if you suspended them right next to one another, not quite touching... Uh, from the ceiling on very strong, very fine fishing line, uh, with instruments, you could actually measure the extent to which the two bowling balls pull towards one another. And so the strings are actually not parallel because the two bowling balls are attracted towards one another. This is the thing called gravitational force. And then there's something called electrostatic force. When you, um, you know, when you comb your hair with a certain type of comb, a nylon comb, for instance, and then you uh, try and pick up little pieces of paper, electrostatic force, um, rub a balloon on your sweater, an inflated balloon on your sweater, and then you find the balloon will stick to different things, electrostatic forces. And there's also nuclear forces holding nucleus, nuclei of an atom together. And Einstein was absolutely enraptured with his quest for finding out what unifies them all. And it's like weird, but there are very strong similarities. And he called it the unified field theory. Well, yes, we all as scientists, we long to find out what is that singular force that actually unifies all those things that we used to perceive as separate types of utterly disconnected forces. And at the moment, we, do, we still don't see how they're fully connected, but they must be. And everybody wants to try and figure that out. Well, the answer is really clear. I'm quite sure you're already beginning to say, uh, you know, why does this rabbi not get to the point already, right? We know what this is all about, but wait. One more example, lists. Lists are almost irresistible. When I give a speech, I very often say there are three reasons for this phenomenon. Or I might say there are three aspects to understanding this. And people find that helpful. People like to read lists on the internet. When they try to get your attention to bombard your eyeballs with ads, they'll say something like the 10 most frightening sites you've ever seen, or something like that. It'll always be 10 or 15 or 5. There was even a best-selling book many years ago called The Book of Lists. And, uh, you know, 10 of this, 10 of that. Anyways, you, the 10 most important things you have to know about marriage, yeah, you're probably going to give me a little more of your attention than if I were to say, hey, you know, I can tell you some things you should know about marriage. No, not some, 10. Or some of the most important things uh, um, about anything. Lists always suggest a unification. It may even be a list of 15 or 10 or 8 items, but it's one list. Here, embodied in this one list, is the answer. It's all there. Everything you could need to know. It's very appealing. That's one of the appeals of lists. What's it all about? Where does it come from? What is at the root? What is the underlying essence of why we are so attracted to the idea of the one big idea, the one big reason, the one big explanation? Why are we so attracted to oneness? And the answer, 
my dear happy warriors? The answer is simple. And that is that the yearning, and again, I, I, I know full well, obviously, there are many, many different kinds of people that listen to the show. And I sincerely thank each and every one of you happy warriors that downloads it regularly. I really do. I appreciate that. And I know that you come in many different belief flavors. Some of you have a faith. Some of you don't have a faith. Some of you are religious. Some of you are not. Some of you are agnostic. Some of you are atheistic. I understand that. And I welcome that. I absolutely do not want to have the sort of show that attracts only one kind of people. Standardized, conforming audience? No, not at all. That's not my desire in any way whatsoever. And obviously, if you've stuck with me this long, then you obviously are the sort of person who is capable of dealing with cognitive dissonance, meaning you are capable of dealing with ideas that make you uncomfortable. Not everybody is, by the way. I admire that very greatly because it's challenging. And I will tell you, and you can absolutely rely on this, that the overwhelming majority of people reject ideas that create emotional pain. They just reject the idea. And heaven knows we're seeing it in the political uh, agenda as 2020 winds its way towards the month of November. The classic example of cognitive dissonance is the person who is abandoned by a father or by a mother and then says, you know, uh, they tell a therapist um, and they talk about it or the counselor and the person says to them, look, I'm sorry, but you just need to get used to the idea. Your mother never loved you. That's all. Your mother just never loved you. That's all there is to it. And for many, many people, uh, therapists tell me all the time, there are people who react to that kind of thing by creating an alternative scenario. Because the idea that your mother never really loved you is painful. And so they reject the evidence. They reject the information. This is very, very normal. It's called cognitive dissonance, meaning that awareness of a certain idea makes you um, uh, feel dissonant, uncomfortable. It clashes with things you believe strongly. One of the, the very standard psych tests that are part of psycho Psychology 101 in first-year psychology courses that get kindergarten students all excited and jumping up and down with glee at their intellectual prowess, uh, famous, famous experiment done over and over again where they show a group of people uh, carefully prepared magazines. The people don't know that the mag magazines have been doctored to contain many different car ads. And they show ads, the cars, very appealingly. And the group has been selected to comprise those people who just bought a car and those people who are shopping for a car. Guess what? Which group do you think looks at more of the ads? The people who bought a car spend most of their time reading the ads only of the car they've already bought. They don't look at the others, whereas people who have not yet bought a car look at all the ads approximately the equal amount of time. Do you see what's going on here? If you've just bought a new car, you stay away from ads from other, for other cars. Why? Because you want to reject the information that could be painful, namely that you could have done better, you should have got another kind of car. What happens if you read an ad for another car that makes you realize you didn't do so well? You should have gotten that other vehicle. You don't want that information. It makes you painful. You reject the information. It's absolutely normal. It's absolutely natural. Human beings do that. It's called cognitive dissonance, where you feel such dissonance or pain at information, you reject the information. That's all. And in conversations whether it's politics or science or anything else, if something contradicts a deeply held position you have built up, every instinct in your body is calling on you to reject it. And it requires intel incredible intellectual fortitude 
it requires incredible intellectual toughness. Um, it requires intellectual discipline to be able to listen to conflicting information, weigh it up, think about it, contrast it and compare it with what you already think you know. Um, the walkaway movement. Family members have cognitive dissonance. Funny, because I ask what of his actions do you oppose? Uh, they hate his racism, his bigotry, his sexism, etc. But in the real world, calling people names is an indictment of you, not of the subject of your defamation. Not everybody can tolerate the pain and overcome cognitive dissonance. And so those of you, and I think most likely I probably subject you to things with which you don't necessarily agree a lot of the time, uh, maybe in every single show. So I have double the gratitude for you and to you and triple the admiration for you for sticking with the show. Because the truth is, it is always far nicer to listen to a program that does absolutely nothing but reinforce what you already believe. I call that massaging you with warm butter. It's fun, but quite useless. Now, naturally, it teaches you absolutely nothing. It gives you absolutely no value whatsoever. It's being massaged with warm butter. But the opposite is working out at a gymnasium or at home. Now, that hurts. It's hard to do to exercise, but it helps. It, you achieve something with it. And so what I'm about to say is obviously not going to sit naturally and automatically with everybody. But I respect you far too much to withhold the information for that reason. And the information is that the good Lord created us to love him. That's right. In the same way that he created us with physical needs. Right? Now, I, I gave you the whole introduction on cognitive dissonance because I know this is hard to accept. And I'm not saying you must accept it. But... All I'm saying is that you would be doing yourself a disservice to reject it before you've allowed it into your brain for consideration. And that's what most people do, but not happy warriors. So um, uh, the, uh, the, this information that God created us to love him in the same way he created us to need oxygen and the same way he created us to need food and enjoy food and we need shelter we also need to love him, but we don't always know that. He created us to want to be close to him. Unity, the ultimate unity. Now, the metaphor for that is our relationship with our parents. Listen carefully to this. And, and I mean, I know this is going to be uh, cognitively dissonant for many, many people. But uh, you happy warriors, you know, I think the world of you. So, so here goes. Contemplate it. Consider the possibility that some of the pain you go through is simply because you've been depriving yourself of oxygen. In this case, let me explain. Yeah, we need to love God. Not doing so leaves a bit of a vacuum in our souls, in our spiritual makeup. Now, the metaphor, as I refer to it, is our relationship with our parents. The natural condition is for us to want to love our parents. Deep down, we absolutely and desperately want to love our parents but we resist it and we find us just as we resist loving God and we find ourselves particularly as we get a bit older we find ourselves kind of dare I say irritated by them and as as parents you sort of sometimes reach a point where you realize you are irritating your children sometimes and, but there's nothing you can do about that. It's their struggle in the same way that your relationship with your parents was your struggle. 
we find our parents' idiosyncrasies to be almost intolerable. And it causes us frustration. Oh, it gets us so mad. I can't believe, you know what my mother did? It causes a lot of unhappiness. Because deep down on a subconscious level, you really, really want to love your parents. You really do. <laughs> now, I, look, I know it's difficult, right? I, believe me, I, I know and understand it. I've, I've seen the dynamic with many people. And so I really know that there are many of you listening right now who say, oh, boy, he doesn't know my parents. Uh, but um, that is that, that feeling we have towards our parents is there to prevent us from doing what we should be doing. You know, I've spoken in the past about spiritual gravity, right? It's what makes you not want to exercise. Spiritual gravity is what makes you want to eat things that are not healthy for you. Spiritual gravity is what makes you want to take a shortcut. Um, the spiritual gravity are the things that tend to drag us downwards towards the apes rather than upwards towards the angels. And one aspect of spiritual gravity is to make you focus on all your parents' annoying idiosyncrasies, because that way, hey, you don't have to love them. And you're able to avoid doing what you really need to do. You experience an utterly different life if you love your parents. And of course, you experience an utterly different life if you also love God. And this is hard stuff, right? Because the instinct, particularly over the last 60 years, of the aggressive steamrollering of secularism through society, um, the tendency is, well, I'm not sure I believe in God, so how can I love him? <laughs> so I get that. Um, so you yield to this impulse to say, well, I don't know if I believe in God, or you yield to the impulse to find parents irritating and annoying and bothersome, and maybe you even spend $100 an hour talking to a therapist, explaining how your parents ruined your life and all that sort of stuff. The truth is, you would be a far, far happier person if you could simply get past all of that and to learn to love your parents again, ideally while they're alive. And you know, people have all kinds of explanations, all kinds of rationales, all kinds of reasons why their parents did this to them and their parents are that. And yeah, fine, it's all rational. I get it. But what I also get is that you were born and created to love your parents that's how the world really works. Not easy, but then eating healthily isn't easy either, but it makes for a better life. Exercising and keeping your body strong, not easy. It's much easier to sit on the couch and watch television, much easier, but it does give you a better life. Not easy to love your parents, but doing so actually gives you a better life. And, uh, and you help, it helps if you recognize that inside of us, we each have a dark impulse to find fault with our parents. And this goes way back to when we were little kids. We'd say, why can't you be like Johnny's parents? You remember we used to like Johnny's parents. And we could spend time at Johnny's house and, and everything his parents did. His dad did things that were funny and his mom was smart. Everything was great. But whenever you were around your own parents, they just irritated the devil out of you. It was awful. Right? That's all part of the spiritual gravity. This is the dark impulse. And this is why the fifth commandment in chapter 20 of Exodus, right, 10 commandments, um, the fifth one is to respect your father and mother. 
why doesn't it say to love your father and mother? Well, because that isn't easy to do. You, you have to, in order to change the way you feel about people, you have to act the way you would act if you already felt the way you want to feel. Now, that's not a tongue twist. I'm not trying to confuse people. But if you want to regulate your feelings, then you need to do the actions that you would naturally do if you already felt the way you wished you felt. You get it? I'm not trying to confuse you. Uh, no tongue twisters. I'm just saying that that um, that the tenth, the, the the fifth commandment can say, honor and respect your mother and father. Okay, come on. You know, no matter how irritating they are, this shouldn't be hard for you to do, right? And that's called behaving towards them the way you would behave if you loved them. And then what happens is you start feeling because feelings follow into conformity with actions. So if you act the way towards them you would act if you felt towards them the way you wished you felt, then you start to feel that way. Very important point and well worth an experiment, particularly if you're lucky enough to have them around. You get it? Um, one of the expressions I used to use as a child, I'm sure I've told you this, um, but only a very few times because the response was invariably four finger marks on my cheek from my mom. Very, very quickly, when I used phrases like this, the phrase that used to get me four finger marks on my cheek was, I can't help how I feel. I can't help how I feel. That's how I feel. Now, I remember I said it about a sibling of mine. I expressed in no uncertain terms the loathing I was feeling for a sibling at that moment. My parents explained to me, no, you can't feel that way. That's not acceptable. You have to feel love for your sibling. And I said, well, I can't help how I feel. I feel like I hate him. Whack! There it came right away. Because you can help how you feel. And the way you help how you feel is you act not in accordance with how you feel, but in accordance with what your head tells you to do. And then feelings fall into place. It's really important, by the way. Have you ever... Have you ever ended up, uh, you sort of have a, a fight with a spouse, a disagreement, an argument, and you get really mad, and you walk, you stalk away, you just want to be by yourself, because you don't want to even say anything more that you might regret beyond what you've already said. And then you start figuring out, you know, how are you going to get this right? I mean, an apology. Um, you see, you right now, you're feeling angry, but you can change feelings. God created us with an incredible power to regulate our feelings. And, uh, and that's why I was told, don't you dare say you can't help how you feel. You absolutely can help how you feel. Um, the, uh, the Tenth Commandment expresses that very succinctly. The Sixth Commandment is you shall not murder. The Seventh is no adultery. The Eighth, you're not allowed to steal. You're not allowed to take property that belongs to other people. Okay, fine. So I won't know any longer. I will not take property that belongs to other people. So what about desiring things that belong to other people? You know, so what? I'm not hurting anybody, right? Wrong. You are hurting somebody. You. You see, the Tenth Commandment says you're not even allowed to want or desire things that other people have. You may not covet things that other people have. And you might say to God, look, God, I can't help how I feel. I can't help it. I can help what I do. I would never steal their stuff, but I sure lust after it. And uh, God gives us the equivalent of four finger marks on the cheek. He gives us a whack because it does us very much harm to want other people's stuff.
And so we can not only regulate our behavior, we can regulate our feelings as well. You have to regulate how you feel. It's really important. It makes for a happier life. And if we can indeed regulate how we feel, then what we're supposed to do, of course, is act in the way we would act if we already felt the way we wished we felt. That's how we regulate our feelings. And so respect your father and mother. You'll notice, you know, as I said, no love your father and mother. All you've got to do is act towards them with respect and you will come to love them. That's key. We control our feelings by our actions. You feel fear, act as if you're fearless. You feel sad and miserable, act as if you're happy. Everything changes. This isn't, a, a, you know, for little children. This is for big people. It's a big secret. It's a massive secret that has colossal implications on your lifestyle, your whole state of mind, ultimately your happiness and your success as well. And so we don't like the way we feel about our parents. Simple, act towards them the way you would act if you really felt the way towards them. You wish deep down, you wished you loved them. You really do. It's subconscious. We all wish that we loved our parents. It's easy. It's easy to do. We must do it because we're happier for it. In the same way, we all feel on a very deep level drawn to God, our Father in heaven. But in the same way there's a dark impulse that forces us to find fault with our parents, there is an almost identical dark impulse that forces us to find fault with our Father in heaven. And this drives a wedge between us and him, and it causes us to distance ourselves. And, uh, and again, I just want to repeat the fundamental thing. I know there's a lot of cognitive dissonance with it, but uh, allow this into your consciousness, into your cognitive process, and instead of just tossing it out, contemplate it. Say to yourself, hey, what if that is true? What? That one, we have a, an inbuilt, wired need to love God. We have an inbuilt, wired need to love our parents. And that's why it is that we also have built into us the resistance to that. In the same way, we've got resistance built into us against doing all the things that would improve our lives, and we feel spiritual gravity tugging us down towards all the things that would hurt our lives. In the same way, we've got a dark impulse making us not want to love God and not wanting to love our parents. It's a very worthwhile experiment. You just try, you just try it out, and uh, each and every one of us can actually benefit our lives. It's almost as if we're our own worst enemies, right? We separate ourselves from God. We drive ourselves apart. And it's a very, very good model for what we do with our parents as well. Our father in heaven, our father on earth, our mother on earth, same thing. No difference at all. And so the idea is very simple. In that the ambivalence we might have for God is reflected in our yearning for unity. That's what it is. One of the reasons that socialism is appealing is it's a replacement for God if you're determined to keep God out. And so even the atheists and the communist regimes, even they dream of the same kind of unity, but they're not willing to satisfy it by loving God, and so they have to satisfy it by the oversimplified unities within socialism. So you could almost sort of give them the benefit of the doubt on a certain level. And, and we understand that their yearning ultimately for the unity of God, which they will not accept, they, they rule that out, cognitive dissonance too strong, so they adopt socialism. And this, I think, helps us understand why it is 
that after we've spent several decades busting God out of the village square, out of education, out of entertainment, out of government, out of sports, once we've got rid of God, why would it surprise us that young people want to become socialists? There's nothing you can do about that yearning for unity. We all desire unity. And if you have rejected the possibility of satisfying the need for unity by a connection with God, then you have no choice but to go the other direction. And that is called socialism. It has caused immeasurable destruction during the 20th century. And I pray to Almighty God that it's not going to cause similar destruction in the 21st. But I do think that, uh, heaven forbid, if if uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris uh, do win in November 2020, that we are on an almost irrecoverable road of socialism. And uh, at that point, uh, we draw open the curtains to a dark and satanic Tannic abyss, the end of which nobody can see. We have a beautiful thing in our store called the Biblical Blueprint Set. Um, I've been explaining this uh, desire for unity, and uh, the Bible is a really good place in order to begin trying to satisfy. See, right now, uh, think I'm sort of like a spiritual doctor in a way, right? You, you got something hurting you. You go to the doctor, my arm is sore. And the doctor examines and checks and pulls and prods and, and maybe takes an x-ray and says, well, um, it's actually the problems in your neck. What? I've got, you don't understand. It's my arm that's sore. Yeah. Uh, there's a nerve that runs up your arm and it goes to the spinal column, the neck, and it's being crimped. It's being squeezed between two um, cervical uh, uh, parts of your vertebrae. Uh, I don't want to betray too much ignorance. but And you say, well, you're telling me that there's something in my neck that's causing the pain in my arm? Yeah, that's right. That's exactly how it works. Uh, doctor, okay, you know, I can give you a, a shot to relax your neck, or I can give you some exercises, or worst-case scenario, we'll have surgery. That's kind of what I'm doing. I'm saying, look, uh, you're a happy warrior. You're like a normal human being in so many ways uh, with some very special happy warrior qualities. But um, you've got some pain in your life. The thing causing the pain is not by your arm. It's in your neck. The thing causing the pain is that you are not supplying your being with what it needs, love for your parents and love for God. And so, obviously, you're in pain. Now, you thought the pain came from uh, existential anxiety. You thought the pain came from all kinds of things. But no, it's, it's all in the neck, but you never knew it. And sure enough, you do the neck exercise and your arm feels better. There you go. It's amazing, but it's true. And, uh, and so, similarly here, existential pain, anxiety, unhappiness, try giving your body what it needs which is love for parents, hopefully that's not too late, and love for God. Crazy, right? Because, you know, you, you're you an atheist, maybe, and, and you, you, know, you live a perfectly normal, happy, moral lifestyle. It never occurred to you that this could actually be causing you some pain. Yeah, absolutely. Don't be shocked and don't be surprised. So 
It's called the Biblical Blueprint Set. Go to the website at rabbidaniellappin.com or youneedarabbi.com. rabbidaniellappin.com. In the store, there's something called the Biblical Blueprint Set, and it's going to be on sale for listeners to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show for a little while. And it's made up of five hours of audio. It's very, very interesting stuff. Um, it's uh, it's got something called an hour on let me go. Uh, excuse me, on the perils of profanity. You are what you say, and it's got an hour on um, let me go. How it is that there are ways to get out of the things that are obstructing you on your journey to your destiny. That's right, and it's it's all about why it is that the book of Exodus spends dozens of chapters on getting out of Egypt. You know, it was a historic event done. God took the Hebrews out of Egypt, end of story. Why all the details? Because it's not a history book. It's an instruction manual for, letting, for getting you out of Egypt. You see, in, 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 uh, in uh, Hebrew, every name has a meaning. And so the word for Egypt in Hebrew is Mitzrayim. And one of the reasons that uh, I like what I call Rabbi Daniel Appen's recommended Bible, which you'll also see in our on our website in the store, is because it doesn't say Egypt, it says Mitzrayim. Even in the English translation, it gives you the, uh, the Hebrew pronunciation of the name. See, in Hebrew, the name for Egypt doesn't just mean a place, it means an uh, 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 a straitjacket, something that locks you up, something that obstructs you from reaching your divine destiny. So one of the hour programs is Let Me Go. It's how to get out of your Egypt, how to escape the one thing, the main thing. Maybe it's more than one thing, as I said earlier, but to escape the obstructions that are impeding you from reaching your what should be your destiny. So that's in a program called Let Me Go. There's a program there called Festival of Lights. Right in December, we'll be having the Festival of Lights, Hanukkah. And uh, there are, uh, it, it revolves around the number eight and the number 25. And so that audio program is really interesting. It's how to convert your 24-7 existence into a 25-8 life. And it's, it's all about the role of, of light and the, uh, the, the role of Hadukah in bringing that about. And then finally, because we're only a few weeks away from what's called Yom Kippur, the Hebrew Day of Atonement, um, that is, a uh, uh, again, one of the hours is the Day for Atonement, uh, a, a way of achieving spiritual tranquility and harmony. So it's five separate uh, one-hour audio programs, which you can download and, and have available already today. All of that at rabbidaniellappin.com. It's called the Biblical Blueprint Set, and uh, it is available at a special price for Happy Warriors for a short period of time. Always has to be a short period of time, obviously, because uh, there are a lot of people who go to the store who are not uh, part of the happier warrior, part of the happy warrior community. So there we go, and um, we are as just as far as we can get for today's Rabbi Daniel Lappin show. So all that is left is for me 
to thank you for listening. Thank you so much for writing to me. Thank you for sharing the show. I really appreciate those of you who spread it um, and, and help other people find out about it. And so until next week, when we are together again, I'm your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, wishing you a week of good times with your family, with your faith, with your finances, with your friendships, and with your physical fitness. God bless. Spilling ancient solutions to modern problems in areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network.